to the Climate Change Therapy Podcast, a product of BlockRadius.net, your most trusted online media outlet for urban planning and unrelated topics today. date is Monday, October 26, 2020. I'm your host, Hank Felsman. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, this is the podcast where we talk through our worries about the greatest threat to humanity and indeed the world ever seen, and that is climate change, with all due respect to nuclear weapons. Whether we admit to these worries or not, whether we suppress them or wear them on our sleeves, this is what we do our best to talk about on this program, because rarely do we in real life talk about it. There's always something else, always some more immediate concern. The coronavirus, the election, racism and bigotry, genocide, there's always something else. But during this hour, we've carved out some time to zoom out, look at the world as a whole, as a natural system, changing physically as never before in history, changing because of humans, because of us. It's a stark realization that we are responsible for this mess. And well, what else is there to say other than it's high time we try to make some sense of it all? My guest today is a very special guest, one of the smartest people I know, some Testament to that, he memorized David Mamet's impossibly complicated play, Oleana. Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. That's Oleana, David Mamet. He's the most interesting man in my family, my Uncle David. But first, let us take a moment, as always, to thank our longtime sponsor, Roland Cases of Mosrakin. Suitcases on wheels, whether you're packing an overnight bag to the polls, just because you're not sure how long the line's going to be this year or you're fleeing to Canada, Roland Cases are the suitcases on wheels for you and your life's journey. Roland Cases. And now, ladies, gentlemen, listeners old and new, I bring you my Uncle David. Hey, Hank. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? All right. The, uh, that rolling case you promised me didn't arrive, so uh, I'm a little disappointed. Well, it, it takes a while because you have to roll it there. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, okay. and there's a lot of there's a lot of hills up there in the Hudson I'll Valley. I'll keep looking out the window and waiting for it to come up the road. <laughs> so, so it's good to to see you, uh, albeit virtually, here. Uh, when when's the last time we've seen each other in in person? At this point. I believe we crossed paths in South Orange, where your grandmother, my mother, lives not too long ago. But before the pandemic hit? It was before, yeah. Okay. So maybe my mom's birthday or something. Could have been. So it's probably about eight, nine months. Crazy. Almost no. a year now. Um, well, I introduced you. Do you want to introduce yourself or our, our listeners? Well, I am Uncle David, and uh, I live in the Hudson Valley. I'm a writer and an actor and full-time uncle. And uh, I've lived up here for since 1991 full-time. I also split some time when it's non-pandemic, uh, non-pandemic times in New York City. Uh, I lived in LA for quite a while and lived in New York City for exclusively for quite a while. And now I'm uh, up here. I am technically retired, though if you're acting and writing, you are never retired. You're always looking for some 
the next gig or the next story or something like that. And that pretty much uh, defines what I am. I uh, practice Aikido, a Japanese martial art. And uh, that has be, that's pretty much a central part of my life or had been up until COVID times. And now we have to uh, have distanced classes, which is sort of uh, the opposite of the idea of Aikido, which is about blending with your partner. As I say, like doing a Zoom version of Aikido is like a Zoom version of Thanksgiving would be eating a picture of a turkey. <laughs> it's just a very pallid <laughs> version of it. But uh, anyway, that's... That's uh, that's enough to, to say about myself at this point, I think. I think that's good. That gives a good overview of some of the different topics we want to we dive into for sure today. Uh, but first, we have to start with the question that we ask every guest, which is, how do you think and talk about climate change in your everyday life? And since the pandemic, we've sort of modified this question to say, how did you think about climate change, talk about it before COVID hit? And how has that changed, if it's changed, uh, now in fall of 2020? Uh, the, the, I think that the pandemic, uh, since it also is linked to climate change, has only put a fire under the conversations that I've had for quite a while anyway. I live in the country. And uh, one of the, immediately after talking about the weather up here, uh, people usually talk about their gardens, the land, what's going on. And one thing that has been going on for quite a while is uh, um, our, our diseases that have been coming from insects, mostly from insects that are affecting humans and animals and plants, especially trees. When I first moved up here, uh, you could find the occasional ash tree. Most of them are gone. If you come over a hill, if you're hiking and come into a sort of a bare patch and there's skeletons, sort of a skeleton army of trees, chances are there'll be ashes. And now the hemlocks have something and this has something. And there, there are a lot of different diseases up here of the trees. The other thing that uh, has been a real indicator is, of course, ticks. You know, do you have Lyme? You think you have Lyme? Well, what about babiosis? Well, you know, all the tick-borne diseases. And uh, people mark each year almost by when the first couple of hard frosts is. So we can, when, when the first freeze is that can actually, if it doesn't destroy the tick population, it just actually stops them for a little, a little bit. Inevitably, there's somebody in the winter or spring who says, I found a tick on me. You know, some it's like, and it's rolling back earlier every year. Somebody in February is like, I got, I found a tick on me. I took a walk. I couldn't believe it. There's a tick. And uh, so their, their life cycle is moving much more uh, rapidly to the entire calendar. It seems um, also Canada geese. You can hear mm -hmm. the geese flying South. They're way up in the sky this time of year, way up there, but a lot of them winter over. There are bird species that winter over now. That's because of the climate change. Uh, and there are plants that do that are moving in that that do well, too well since climate has changed. Uh, there is an invasive species of water chestnut that has started to take over sort of inlets and and quieter portions of the Hudson River. And the seeds look like little alien spacecraft. It's very strange. They're really, they're black pointy things and they're millions of them. 
And because of the temperature of the water and the climate, and they were brought in from some other place, they've done very well. So that conversation, these are just three examples, you know, mm -hmm. of everybody talks about this all the time because that's what's changed. It's not just the seasons changing anymore. It's also uh, what within the seasons is changing. Uh, ice storms as opposed to simple snow. Uh, long droughts. We, this summer was very, very dry, unbelievably dry. And there's a, it, it, it feels creepy. And everybody sort of feels how creepy it is. And says, did it rain? Are you, is it raining? Or did you get rain? A little bit, you know. So, so we're all very, it's, it's a, it is a daily conversation up here. And everybody I know is very mindful of the changes, even in the last uh, five to 10 years. Hmm. And when was it that you moved up to the Hudson Valley? How long had you been there? I moved to the Hudson Valley full-time in 91 and moved to the house I'm in now in 2002. And did you start noticing changes year to year kind of uh, immediately within your first five years? Or is this really? Yeah. Oh, I noticed uh, it right yeah. away. The ash tree, again, the, the ash tree is a pretty good uh, indicator. Um, a giant canary in the coal mine. Uh, there was a beautiful one right outside the house that I was renting in a, a town nearby. And uh, it would provide great shade. A few twigs would, uh, would fall, a bough or something, made great firewood. And then one year, uh, it just got, um, the, the leaves were smaller, yellower. It dropped earlier in the season and then it died. And it was a, you know, a, a disease that, that had come from someplace else and uh, just took root here. It was, a, it was an insect-borne disease and uh, the ash borer, and it came from somewhere else and the, uh, the climate just uh, changed enough for it to, to survive, to, to thrive. What does an ashtray look like? An ashtray, it's an yeah. ash borer. An ash I do have an ashtray. I know I could Google it, but just, you know, for our I listeners. I don't know what an ash borer in the car. looks like. You, you, you <laughs> could see the tiny, tiny pinholes that they would drill and there are there are pine borers there are all kinds of i think it's an ash borer i know there's a pine borer um but anyway it's there's it's a it's a right away i noticed that 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 uh that changed and also uh if you could call taking land out of um circulation as far as for orchards and so forth when new houses were built in the area it would uh take away a lot of the ground cover there'd be floods where there weren't before streams would run muddy instead of clear uh certain animals wouldn't be around the wild turkeys would disappear the deer of course would move right in mm -hmm. so it just threw the balance off and you could tell right away what that something had changed so were people using when did people start using the words climate change well, up here, this is this is kind of a a, a left leaning area and pretty well educated area. So I think that's that's been in use the whole time I've been up here, because uh, the old timers would remember when the the ponds would freeze over by Thanksgiving, and people would be skating and doing all the Christmas things uh, right at the beginning of December. And now it's it's very rare that there is uh, that the temperatures drop and stay that cold. They're freakishly warm days. There was a storm. I remember early in the 90s, 
on Christmas morning. And it was about 65 degrees, tremendous rain, just rain and wind. And I watched a, uh, a hemlock outside the house I was renting, so stressed by the wind that the roots were, the, the ground was heaving up as the roots were threatening to pull out. And that was on Christmas day. And the old people, the old timers around said they'd never seen anything like that. The combination of wind, rain and warmth on Christmas day, it was very bizarre. Wow. Wow. So I think I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, um, you have a, a, an urban rural duality in your life. So you spend all this time in the Hudson Valley, but you also, you know, uh, have an apartment in Manhattan, uh, right. in, in the, in the village. Um, so can you talk about a little bit about, um, how the, the, what, how you think about climate change changes, uh, depending on whether you're in New York city or when you're in the, whether you're in the Hudson Valley or, um, cause I mean, New York's gone had an incredible change since 1991. Um, mm -hmm. and a lot of people, when they, they think of climate change, they, they think of rural areas, but they also think of cities and just industrial powerhouses. Um, so, I mean, you're kind of in a unique position where you've seen this change over time in, in these two homes that you have. How has your, your experience in, in, in New York and seeing that progress kind of affected the way you look at climate change? Well, I think in general, I, I'm, I'm, I'm much more wary. I tend to worry about things anyway. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wary about things. I'm sort of watching a lot. Uh, in, in the old days, for instance, uh, let's talk about a city thing. If you were walking in the old days before cell phones, uh, if somebody was talking on the street and they weren't with anybody else, chances are something was really off with them, as opposed to them just having a conversation. And there was a kind of signal that you could pick up as you walk down the street from someone who was up the block talking to him or herself, whether they were okay, safe enough to walk by and nothing would happen, or whether you needed to cross the street 10, 15, 50 yards before reaching them to ensure safety. So it was just kind of in, in the mix. You were aware of these things. And I've noticed that when I've been to the city, the last, well, frequently, when I would usually take the bus in, I, I cannot abide driving in New York. It just drives me crazy. Nine, living nine years in Los Angeles and driving everywhere uh, is, is enough to cure almost anybody of wanting to drive. I don't know. Um, but when I take the bus in, comes to the Port Authority, I would take the subway or walk down to the apartment. And inevitably, at some point during my stay, however long it was, if it was two days or two weeks, I would go down to the, uh, the walkway on the Hudson. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I was always looking at the water level. I was always looking at how high the water was, the, what was in the water, what was being carried down from upstream, uh, and, and how high the water was getting. I would go down to the battery and just be so aware that this is not going to stay like this. It was as if the, 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 you know, the, the water level is going to go up. And mm -hmm. I would look and see, it, does it look any higher than when I was there last? And uh, and then, of course, the uh, the superstorm Sandy, I was up here when that happened. But seeing the uh, the the footage of the devastation that it did, I was in all those subway stations. 
<laughs> you yeah. know, all those cascading th- where the water was cascading down. I said, Oh, I was yeah, there. I was oh. in Brooklyn for, I was, I know you were in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. I was there. I was there. So I, I, I'm aware of, of that part of it. And um, the, the other part that I, things like uh, on a very hot day in the, in the city, walking by stores where the, the doors would be open and this blast of air conditioning would come out onto the street mm-hmm. to entice people to go in. It would be this right. cool blast. And this part of it says, oh, that's cool. But then I would think of the chain going back to uh, where, where does that air, where does that cold blast come from? It's air conditioning. It's the power running. It's all of that stuff. And the the strained infrastructure under the streets and all, and the, the incredible heat that just builds up in the, the city. You know, that urban heat is just, it is baking. It, it To me, it always feels like, almost like a vibration, like the, yeah. the, the like the ground is is vibrating with, with heat or something. Um, yeah, the air conditioner is one of those silent inventions that you don't think about as much as what changed the course of human history, but air conditioners, have allowed people to live in high, high numbers in high, high temperatures pretty recently. Yeah. Yeah. The American South, Southeast, Southwest, the Bayou, think about Florida, Arizona, Phoenix is the largest growing cities in America right now. Uh, You look at um, the populations growing exponentially in in Africa and and India. India has always been populous, but the air conditioner is... That's it's quite the invention. And now the wave of, of uh, necessity of air conditioning is, is bouncing back because uh, they're over the last couple of years, there are probably two or I would say two of the last four or five years in Europe in the summers were brutally hot and they don't have air conditioning. Uh, sort of every place does, is not air conditioned. And there were, there were a lot of people who died because they just were got overheated so now more places are probably going to be air conditioned in pl- in areas that never had it never needed it if anything they would think oh we, we need more heaters here but no it's uh it's going the other way mm-hmm. and people moving to the cities especially for jobs and for you know habitat wildlife loss the big farming is taking the smaller eating up the smaller farms in a lot of areas you, the cities are hot, hotter than the countryside. Yeah. 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 All, well, the, all the, the, the violence of uh, the severity and the violence of, of tidal actions and storms, you know, there's just more, there's no more water out there. There's, and, and more temperature and more water. I remember I was living in Los Angeles and uh, one of the huge uh, winter storms came in and it just annihilated the entire beach. It, this was one of them that destroyed the Santa Monica Pier. Uh, the waves were so big that it scooped out, it scalloped out the entire beach where, uh, right down from where my apartment was. And the waves were coming in so he- fast and so heavily that they would come in, scour at the beach. And as they were rebounding, going back into the ocean, they were big enough for people to be um, boogie boarding on the backwash and uh, you know things 
the interconnectedness of things really uh, amazed me. I used to work on Nantucket off of uh, Cape Cod as a lifeguard. Mm -hmm. And one of the prizes that we used to, when we would go beachcombing, were uh, hatch covers and crate covers from Russian fishing trawlers. And you would find this, you know, cheap pine hatch covers with Cyrillic letters burned in that had gone overboard of a Russian trawler in a, in a storm and then just turned up, you know? So the, the, from the earliest days, just looking out at the ocean and seeing how, you know, this thing, this giant thing is going to deliver who knows what mm -hmm. and be, living in California over those years and, and going through a number of those storms where each storm, it seemed like there was more water going farther inland each time it, it got crazy. Um, um, so, well, something I wanted to ask you about, and just while you're talking about Nantucket and the, the ocean and the majesty of the sea and all, um, you've told me before that your favorite novel was Moby Dick, or at least it was up there. Um, and you also mentioned that you were uh, rereading it a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, can you just, uh, just talk about, you know, what is it about, about Moby Dick that uh, you just find so kind of entertaining or or powerful. Well, I I, I think on the one or maybe let, let's let's start with a, a simpler question like like what caused you to want to pick it up again and reread it. Well, when I read it, it was I was probably uh, let's see in high school for the first time when I read it, and then I think I read it again in college. But I decided to pick it up and see if. Uh, the extra years of, of just being alive would have altered my realization. You know what it's like? It's like uh, listening to song lyrics. Hmm. I grew up listening to the Beatles, let's say the Rolling Stones or classic uh, blues songs and stuff. And I would sing the, the words because I, you know, you'd hear the words and I got, and then, 25 years later, the song would come on and I would go, oh, my God, that's what it's about. That's what it means, because I had, you know, careened through the intervening years and smashed into that or failed at that or right. got excited by that. And I had some of the experience yeah. that, that uh, these songwriters had touched upon and then wrote about. So Moby right. Dick. So Moby Dick's it's really about LSD. <laughs> Well, it, it might as well. Who knows what Ahab was not did not come on deck until oh. they were well, well out into the sea. He could have developed a huge drug habit in the time. You know, right. who knows what was in those casks? They weren't they weren't all labeled. They just weren't. <laughs> uh, you know, what was inside that peg leg? We, mm -hmm. we don't know if there was a compartment. Right. You know, well, so well, why read why reread Moby Dick as opposed to. You know, Bleak House or Underworld or some of the other books that, that I know you have on your shelf? Well, one thing is Moby Dick was so central to American literature. It was such a milestone. It's like reading, rereading uh, Huck Finn or, um, you know, something like that or the Edith Wharton books. But um and also what I liked about Moby Dick is it was sort of divided. There were chapters about cetology, you know, about the whales themselves and then yeah. the, back to the humans. And 
the the whales the world of the whales was just there it was they just did what they did and they they had a you know they migrated the way they migrated they ate the way they ate they nursed their young they communicated there was a very it was a very well I hate to use the ocean term but pacific way of mm -hmm. doing things and here were these human beings these crazy these <laughs> crazy people obsessed and terrified and and brazen and you know it's as if if you turned it around and the whale had created this huge bathtub on wheels and came up on land and all these farmers were out just mm -hmm, raising their <laughs> and they wow. were and they were taking them off and and eating them or or melting the people down for for uh oil for their lamps you know they were these human beings are going out in this completely hostile environment in mm. these these boats that were i mean they're really small if you've ever gone on actually yeah. a reproduction of a of a whaling ship they're they're not big and mm. all the 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 troubles that they dealt with with weather and getting lost and you know all the rest of it uh so i was just interested in the kind of uh, mania that that uh that book really put on on display also that that uh, you know ahab was he was the boss and there was still a structure there was still a hierarchical structure there and as crazy as he was he was the captain and uh, yeah. his his look what look what happened you know only ishmael lived to tell the tale everybody went down uh, and by the way as a side note speaking of nantucket uh, the, one of the years I was out there, I rented a house on Quince Street, and right across the street was a gift shop called the Seven Seas. Really clever naming. Uh, but originally, the Seven Seas was the home of uh, a whaling ship captain named Captain Pollard. And Captain Pollard was the captain of the whaling ship Essex, which was struck and sunk by a whale. Mm. And Herman Melville came to that house, I believe he came to that house to actually talk to Captain Pollard about the experience. I don't know mm. if the if the Essex actually was sunk. I, I can't vouch for it, but it was it was attacked by the whale, mm -hmm. and so he was doing his uh, his his uh, deep deep six research. I've always thought of whales differently since I found out that both whales and humans evolved from the same common ancestor that was at one point, a kind of rat-like shrew. Yeah. 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 Which is crazy. It's like whales and people are both the same amount of distance right. from- but, but only human beings other land the rat-like shrewish behavior. <laughs> right, right. And and humans attack the way they attacked the whales. It would be like if all of a sudden rats just decide to start attacking humans for our- Yeah, well, that's- oil. A, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. One yeah. Of the, when I read Moby Dick, one of the things I- I enjoyed about the um, all those chapters on on uh, the taxonomy of of the whales that I, I thought it was it was cool because obviously it was before Wikipedia it was in what 1856 or something mm -hmm. and all of these details on the whales as a snapshot in time from that understanding of of the period I feel like it, it's it's contributed a lot 
to what we know today about about whales a but also it um, kind of forced people who would normally maybe only read uh, fiction or po popular novels um, to like all of a sudden be confronted with these facts about whales that they wouldn't go to get them you know if you were interested in whales you would have to go to the library and it would be hard work to compile the kind of information about this this species um, then if now it, it would all of a sudden it's there for you in kind of this uh, a, a novel um, and just to get you know I think creative people who like literature thinking about whales which are one of the most inspiring things that nature has has produced I, I just like you know that artistic choice on Melville's part to kind of include that information in there yeah yeah it's and it's beautiful it's, it's you know the the whales can sound only who I think they can stay under water way way down there for a long time I mean the sperm whales go down and tangle tangle with the giant squid I mean they're way down there have you seen so, a whale in real life have I seen yes I have seen a whale in real life and in California um and it's it is awesome. It really it's what's interesting is uh, similar to seeing a bear up in my area. It does something to your body. Your 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 nervous system does does something when because there's another life force, a very potent one in the vicinity. How close um, were you and, and how much of the whale did you see? Uh, it was just the flukes. You know, it was just the sort of the, the sea went sort of a different color, a little darker because the, the body of the whale was coming up and then just the, the, the spine sort of halfway back. And then the flukes just came up and that was, that mm -hmm. was it. It was, it was just a brief moment, but it was, it was electrifying. It really was. You could feel it going up your, your back. And like I say, seeing a bear up here too. And what it does in person to see something like that, an animal that imposing and and that um sort of self-contained i won't call it the human beings came up with something called confidence you know that's a different aspect but just the 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 air about an animal just doing exactly what it does uh, the big cats the hunting cats are like that there's a kind or the or a raptor you know the an eagle well, they they just have this there's something really um, in the true sense of the word awesome about it because they're just, they're, they're asking no quarter and they're not giving it either. But seeing the bear up here I, at first you, you hold your breath, your breath just stops. Mm. And then all of a sudden you're sort of breathing in conjunction with how the bear is moving and it changes it because it's, it's a different part of the environment. Part of it is it's this iconic, incredible animal and we know so much about them and there's so much in our, in our consciousness really, but to actually be in the presence of one in the wild mm -hmm. is a really different feeling. Uh, in, in this area where I live now, there are a lot of nesting pairs of eagles. That's one of the things that has been one of the success stories of, of this area and around the Ashokan Reservoir. And now there are some in, uh, Kingston they're they and they're magnificent but that's the same kind of thing you see an eagle flying low over the water a bald eagle and they're big mm -hmm. and it's and it's like oh my god look I've seen this on every on the stamps it's on the 
know, right. and here they are it, in here the it backyard. is and it's yeah. this incredibly fierce bird this magnificent thing and it really it it's it's a, an adjustment it's a real adjustment to 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 see them in the wild yeah um the black just a it's the black bear black bears yeah that's the only one we have they're very polite you know we're lucky no grizzlies no kodiaks not even brown bears are just black bears here and uh considering how many there are and there are quite a few now considering how many people there are the fact that there is relatively little trouble is kind of indicative of how they they'll just keep to themselves it's the classic thing if there's a if there's a sow, if you get between a, a sow and a cub, you don't want to be there. Uh, mm. But they'll bluster and move around. They, they're, they're not uh, a lot of encounters. There'll be sometimes where a dog or a, a cat will be attacked or something, but not, not people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one thing that's one of the saddest things to me about climate change is the loss of some of these great species. Um, mm-hmm. the fear, you know, the, like it seems like every year an animal that you've heard about goes extinct, whether it's like some species of, of elephant or rhinoceros, um, that these are all pretty fragile. Um, there was a study, this is, this is time for, uh, uh, we'll do a little segment here called climate change fact and react. So I'll just say the fact and you'll react to it. Um, okay. But this study, uh, published in the journal Nature in 2018, um, said that uh, five countries hold the uh, the vast majority of the world's remaining wilderness, which is 70%. Those five countries are Australia, the U.S., which is mostly Alaska, uh, Brazil, Russia, and Canada. Mm-hmm. So 70% of the world's wilderness uh, in those five countries, the rest, a lot of it is, is in Africa. Um, right. 77% of land, not including Antarctica, and 87% of oceans had been modified by human intervention. Is, so thoughts yep. on those numbers, 77% of land yep. modified by that humans. Doesn't surprise me. We're a grotesquely successful species. Mm-hmm. No. So human beings, there's close to 7 billion right now on earth. Uh, the second most populous primate is the crab eating macaque from Southeast Asia at 2.5 million. Wow. It's the second most populous primate. Um, any, re- any reaction to that? As long as the crabs hold out, it'll have, that'll, the macaque will be in second place. Who knows? It's pretty precarious. These are the, um, the macaques uh, that are they're preserved at the different temples in, right. uh, in India. Yeah, you, you see them on the street stealing apples. Right. Um, the uh, so they're a lot closer to humans than we think. <laughs> well, apparently, humans... we steal apples. I mean, you know, theft is a, is a huge in human beings. I mean, how many seven much. billion? I, I would say five hundred million humans are probably thieves anyway. So there you go. They've been observed using stone tools to open things. They open cans of soda, and they like yeah. they like rub a leaf in a certain way. They're they're very smart. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's see. Um, well, they'll probably be opening up branches in cities soon, and you know, or, or stealing stealing branches. 
Um, all right, here's a good fact. Uh, okay. the, the global literacy rate. Uh, in 1820, the literacy rate, I'm putting you on the spot. What would you guess? In 1820? 1820, the percentage of people that could read and write. Over the world? Yes. Yeah, the estimated. As far as they knew? Yeah, as far as they knew. Oh, God. I would say it was extremely low. I would say 0.25%. They say 12%. 12? Wow. Yeah. Today, they say- I I didn't finish Moby Dick, by the way. (laughs) I didn't. didn't. Uh, Spoiler, (laughs) it was 12%. Wow. Wow. Um, Surprised. Today, the literacy rate is 86%. Mm-hmm. Over the last sixty-five what years, what? What's the literacy <laughs> rate among the macaques? I, I really want to know that figure. <laughs> they're stealing 10%. books. But they're not. They're stealing books, which is the first step to reading. So they're good. They'll yeah. get. They'll well, get. There's also a big a big gap between the macaque population and the um and the third most populous primate. This is according to Wikipedia, uh, for what yeah. it's worth. But the so the list of primates, number one is humans with seven point six billion. Right. And number two is the crab eating macaque with two point five million. And number three is the Bornean gibbon, the Muller's Bornean gibbon with two hundred fifty thousand. So an order of magnitude. Wow, that's less. that's going down. Yeah, and Borneo is yeah. not in great shapes either. I mean, they're they're under tremendous assault there. Yeah, and that's unless in danger. Some, yeah, unless they've got some preserves there, and they they got on that one early on because I know that the between deforestation and and oh, everything yeah. can't be can't be easy. Oh yeah, the the third most populous primate on Earth is listed as an endangered species. Yeah, um, there you go. And then you have chimpanzees around two hundred thousand, uh, and then the bonobos. Those are our closest relative. Bonobos right. are around. Uh, it says 20, 29 to 50,000. Mm-hmm. And then um, you're down into the mandrels and the, and the baboons and all those. Huh? Yeah. The, um, the sifakas, the, the tamarins, the lemurs, the, the lemurs. Yep. Yeah. I had the lemurs and the bobinos, the bonobos over for <laughs> right before the pandemic, but I, I haven't been able to get together with them lately. They made a mess, and I, you know, I just... bonobos are bonobos are really cool. So, and this is the last fact, and then and then we'll move on um, for a second. Um, so, the the along with the the chimpanzees, the bonobos are the closest relative to the humans. Uh, they think that the fork happened about four million years ago. Um, four, four million. Four million years ago, they kind of parted that branch, parted from from humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the um, the bonobos and chimpanzees were on the same branch, and they part parted uh, about like one point five million years ago, perhaps right. one million years ago. And one theory is that um, like the Congo River kind of divided two species because the bonobos and the chimpanzees can't really swim. So they became separated permanently because of the river. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a, an old wives tale. I think what really happened is they had a huge disagreement over a will. <laughs> Fair enough. You know? And that was, they never spoke again. They, they never forgave each other. That was that. <laughs> you go on that side of the river. 
I wanted that dresser. <laughs> Never learned to swim. Maybe that's what makes humans humans. We learn to swim. That's right. That's one of the things. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk with you about climate change therapies because uh, I know you have a number of them. Um, you've both given, you know, excellent advice to me as a full-time uncle who's never, you know, had a day off from that uh, in my life, um, as well as you've told me about advice that's been given to you that you've passed down from from Sensei's or or um, whomever. Um, so some of these therapies, just kind of ways to say positive productive amid all the external noise, the existential threats, future worries to stay centered, uh, as what, as you've told me. Um, but I, I mean, I have a, a list here of, of, of things that, that I know you do, you, uh, like it, whether it's writing, you know, acting, you know, gardening, um, mm. Aikido, uh, even playing football back in the day. Um, do these things, I, I mean, how do you, how do you see these, um, I want to call them hobbies or just kind of, uh, activities, uh, like play a role in, uh, helping you stay centered or helping you deal with perhaps the existential worry of climate change. Well, you know, I think worry is worry. You know, if you're, if you're worried, you can plug in anything. Uh, the existential worry is it's, it's a, an unlimited supply of worry about the, the climate because that's everything. I mean, this is our, where we are, what we, the water we drink, the, the air we breathe, the, the, the food we eat, everything. So if, if, you're, if your nature is to be fretful or nervous, th there's literally not a second of the day where you, you don't have every right to be worried. You can worry with totally appropriately and, and nobody could say you have no right to worry. But if you're thinking, well, now it's just, it's counterproductive, it's getting in your way. I think that there's a balance to be found between being paralyzed with worry and having your head in the sand and being, a, a, you know, a, a just, just oblivious to it, just having nothing to do with it. And uh, for me, what, um, what I have found is as you said before, I, I, I just have to find a way almost every day to, to recenter myself. And, and just as reading Moby Dick over again brings up, it's a different book. As they say, you know, you never put your foot in the, in the same river twice because the water's always is flowing. Uh, so when you bring your focus to something on any given day, the nature of the focus may be the same, but what you pick up, what you're discerning may have changed. It might be different because you're in a different place. Um, there's, uh, and, and for me, I have found that the regularity of coming back to certain uh, practices, certain disciplines, certain exercises, using certain tools is a way to measure how um, well the progress that I've made, or where at least at least, and I don't mean progress in terms of oh I'm better necessarily, but progress in terms of that's where I started and this is where I am now. The distance covered. And um, in Aikido, we have an expression saying "chop wood, carry water," which is you just do the basics, just do the basics, 
And um, I think now, in these days, the, the feeling that a lot of people, I think, have of being overwhelmed that all of these these threats are so oceanic, again, to use a you know, a natural term, yeah, yep. that politics is so far beyond us. The economics, they're so far beyond us. The climate, it's so far beyond us. We're, we're powerless. We're like corks on the water. We're just going to get tossed around wherever we go. But um, the, I think that the, the way to approach that is to be really centered as much as you can and to take responsibility for finding a way to center yourself so that you whatever you have whatever abilities you have whatever uh you have to contribute can be made with a with a good heart and with authenticity mm-hmm. and for me personally i find that that uh when i am worried about something if it's a climate change all this stuff feeds in that i'm i'm sort of my balance is off. I'm tipping forward. I'm careening into the worry. It's like, oh my God, I'm out of control. I'll never have control. It just becomes this kind of wave of careening through my days. Mm -hmm. And to stop that, I really have to just let go of urgency. To me, that's like crucial now. The, the, The urgency, my definition of urgency is it has to end the way I want it to when I want it to. This is the outcome that really needs to happen and it needs to happen now. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it, there's a very, it's like a, a threading a needle for these things, but I've spent decades and decades really holding fast to that thing. You know, I, I was a professional writer. That was my career. And so I worked on soap operas, which meant writing a script every week. Mm-hmm. So I had to be disciplined to churn out a 90 page script each week that actually made sense and fit the bill and followed the story and so forth. But there was that relentlessness to it. And I, and I to push, push, push. Uh, so there was an urgency just built into the structure of the business, but now I'm finding I have to actually release that and just say, no, that's, that's not, that's not helping. And there's no need to do that now because I'm retired. A, B, those shows are gone. I'm not. So I've, I'm having to find a new way to do things. And uh, the notion of things being urgent, uh, I think, is a, is a toxic thing in, certainly in myself and I think in our, our species. You know, there's an urgency to control. There's an urgency to be right. There's an urgency to get what you want and to be rich and to make other people wrong and all this insanity, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, think- Ahab, Ahab had this incredible urgency. He was going to, he had to get the whale. Mm-hmm. I seek the white whale. He, he destroyed his crew. He destroyed himself after, because of this maniacal need to get what he wanted when he wanted it. And, and down they went. The, the Pequod, just down, down it went. Mm-hmm. And I, to me, that's uh, urgency is very linked to ego. It's linked to fear. It's linked to um, the inability to be in a given moment and just accept what's going on in that given moment. Mm-hmm. It's uh, an inability to be truly intimate with yourself, mm-hmm. I think. It's a kind of denial. It's a kind of surrogate uh, 
life. And we, we all have versions of that. We, we are, you know, we, 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 we drink the Kool-Aid oftentimes when we're young. We think, oh, well, this is how you're supposed to be. And this is what I'm supposed to do. And this is how I'm supposed to do it. And if I don't, somebody's going to be disappointed or I think I'll be an idiot. You know, all those things. And you get very driven. Right. The thing about being driven is there's an urgency to it. It has to get done now or else you're, you're in trouble. I feel that being yeah, relatively I mean, we young. Do. I, I, yeah and maybe you know for for you part of that perspective on urgency um has been influenced by your splitting time in the city and in the country and seeing the urgency when you go into new york and you see the hustle and bustle and the people who seem like they're talking to themselves where they're really on their bluetooth and then mm-hmm. you go back to the the country and one thing I, i've noticed about your your house is you have more plants in your house than i've ever seen in, in my life and <laughs> And if there's any uh, any kind of species that are not urgent, it, it's not the not t- turtles. It's it's plants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because we're expecting a really hard frost this week finally, and I brought in, cut back a lot of my plants, brought them in for the winter, and now I was just thinking about this. Uh, I'm even as we speak, there's a little grove of all of my passion flower plants that started out with one vine. And I've, over the years, I have about nine of them now. And now is the time of year where I will just spend, I will look at my plants. That's one of my activities. It's like a meditation. I look at these things. I just look. And inevitably, I will be surprised. One, I'll look at them every day. And then there will come a day where all of a sudden I'll notice that a sprout has come out and I missed when it first started. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really kind of neat to just watch them. I, I what, really, was the, what was the last big surprise with one of your plants? The last big, oh, oh, here's one. I, there was a volunteer um, squash-like plant that, that was across my front yard. I, have, I had a new wall built uh, my old one was crumbling, the one that faces on the road. I live on a hill and uh, there was a retaining wall. This new wall was put in and I looked out and there were these, you know, it looked like a squash or a cucumber, one in that family or a melon. I didn't know what it was. And they would flower these yellow flowers. I'm thinking, what is this? What's it going to be? I did not plant it. So I had to watch and say, is it going to be a cucumber? Is it going to be a squash? Is it a melon? I had no idea. And nothing seemed to happen, nothing and nothing. And I once saw a little tiny thing. It looked like a sort of ovoid bead a little tiny green thing i said well it's too late in the season there's nothing in it nothing's going to happen and at one point i looked over there and i saw this pale thing and there was a a fruit and it was about the size of a sort of a nerf football small nerf football like a kid's football and (laughs) i it wasn't going to grow anymore because it started to get cold i cut it i brought it in and i cut it and i swear i still don't know what it is it's it, it's sort of halfway between a cucumber and a melon. It's either a really unripe melon or a, a super uh, uh, puffed up cucumber. Was and it I, sweet or sour? Like what it's, it kinda, like? it's it's kind of tart, but also sweet. And it's a fun and I'm eating it. I put it on my toast in the morning. So that really surprised me. You know, there's surprises all over the place with the with the. Um, the natural world it's great to to live here and things really change I and mean, last week it, the, the the foliage was absolutely magnificent mm-hmm. we've had some windy days look at and now suddenly the tree across the road completely skeletal all the leaves just gone 
and I have a Japanese maple behind my house that was like starting to change and it just got incredibly vivid, this rich, rich oxblood red. And I'm sure by the end of the weekend, all the leaves will be gone. So you have uh, bird feeders as well. I haven't put up my bird feeders because the squirrels drive me crazy. I cannot bear to watch the squirrels there. And until the, the bear's den, which will happen sometime soon, they would get at it too. Um, so I, would use, I used to put up bird feeders after I knew the bears would not be around, but the squirrels just wreak havoc. And uh, so I, I haven't done it. How old were you when you got into gardening and plants? Because I'm, I'm 31 now and I have yet to get into it, but that's because I live in the city. You know, I've, I've, I'm in the rat race. Um, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid of urgency. Um, <laughs> so how, how old were you when you were able to appreciate the, the patience of natural growth? Uh, I think I've, I've always been kind of attuned to it. I went to summer camp in New Hampshire for 10 consecutive summers and just being in crappy little wooden cabins where, where the doors barely close and the windows were actually just wooden battens over screens, no glass. You're kind of in nature. You're, it's not quite a lean-to, but it feels like that. And, and you're so to be aware of the sound of the wind in the trees and what, what the light does different times of day um, and what grows moss, lichen. In fact, I bought this house because it reminded me of summer camp rocks and the lichen and the moss uh, and the, the outcroppings of, of stone and how the pine trees grow up from between rocks and so forth. It really was evocative of that time. Uh, the smell of pine resin, the, the moldering, the leaf mold that smell is so great this time of year. It's very rich. Um, so I've always been aware of it. And um, your grandmother, my mother, worked at a flower shop in New Jersey for years and years. And I would work there at Christmas time, being a real scut dog, fold, making, uh, folding the boxes for uh, bouquets and so forth. I was a delivery guy. I was watering plants. And in the basement of this uh, storefront flower shop, they would keep the poinsettias at Christmas time. And it was a brick vaulted old, old basement. It was a crappy dirt floor and really scabrous bricks. But all of these poinsettias would be set out on the floor. And it was absolutely magical. It was like a grove. It was like a secret grove. And so about uh, a foot and a half above the ground, there would be this red, you know, the, 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 the petals were red. The flowers are red. And it would just be this layer of red against the sort of dark, dark brick of the wall. And I just found that magical and that these were living things. These were plants that were gonna go out to other places and how carefully we had to actually wrap them before we delivered, because it was Christmas time and they would be, they can't be outside in the cold. So I was, for some reason, I always was very aware of the plants and, and really enjoyed them. And even now, I mean, I'll, I'll take something. I had a, a, a dahlia bulb that was given to me and uh, I planted it and uh, a windstorm came and ripped, this is last summer, took a big branch off of it. I thought, oh no, I hate that. You know, it drives me crazy. So I trimmed it and I put it in some water and it ended up blooming in the winter. It was like a hydroponic dahlia. Hmm. 
and then it started putting roots out. So I planted it in dirt and now I have it as a house plant. It's just the weirdest thing. I don't know. They, they seem to flourish around here. I stick things in water or dirt and they, they grow. It's kind of cool. I've, I've, I've always enjoyed that. What was your backyard or front yard like growing up? Well, there were two. Do you remember houses. any specific trees? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was a in Orange, New Jersey, the first house I was in, there was an enormous copper beech in the backyard. I mean, this thing was absolutely magnificent and it had that pale gray bark, very finely grained. It almost seemed like there was no grain. It was almost like an elephant skin. That's what it seemed like. Uh, not even not even as uh, <clears throat> bumpy as elephant skin. It was just it was smooth and gray. And anytime something bumped up against it, it would form a scar, you know, and but the, the foliage, it was just this incredibly sheltering and folding th- space. And of course, there was no grass underneath it because it was so shady, but there was moss. There were big clumps of bright green moss under there. So it was like another little world. So I remember that really well uh your great grandmother my grandmother had a a sort of a formal garden in behind her house and uh gardeners would come and actually edge it so that always fascinated me that there was like a wow look at this edge to this garden and she had pansies and things in that garden that we did not have at our house and i was always fascinated by it just look at this you know and they would come up and uh, I, I just always would imagine flying over them that I, my where I was was um, actually hundreds and hundreds of feet in the air. And I'm looking down at these little worlds. So in in the traveling that you've done, if I were to say, you know, what's the most beautiful thing in nature you've seen? What you know, I don't want you to have to choose one, but what kind of images stand out? Well, I mean, they're all different kinds. Um, one just happened not that long ago. There was a restaurant near here and I was having uh, dinner outside with a bunch of people and there, a thunderstorm just sort of blew through very quickly. And there was a double rainbow that was du- almost directly overhead. And that was the mo- one of the most vibrant things I've ever seen. And it lasted for quite a while. People poured out of the restaurant into the parking lot to see it. It was just almost literally breathtaking. We were, I've never seen a rain, a double rainbow like that. So vivid. So the colors, so, so broad and delineated almost overhead. It just seemed like it was an impossible angle because usually, you know, you, you look at a certain angle and that's when you see it. But so that was a, that was an astonishing thing. Uh, Being in Norway uh, and a fjord looking out at, uh, uh, at the fjord that was pretty astonishing i didn't realize you went to norway when, yeah when i've was been that? in norway and uh, uh and sweden and and denmark and and up being up above the arctic circle yeah for what? what when did you go that was the summer of 71 wow what, why were you there i just went it was my time to back you know backpack through europe and i just uh got in trains and went places and that, but that was a, a, a beautiful spot. And also going to the top of uh, uh, Mount Washington and Mount Adams and Mount Madison in the presidential range in New Hampshire. That was during the summer camp thing. And walking across the summits, it's above the tree line. 
and they had cairns to tell you where the trail was. And you'd be walking and all of a sudden, fo well, fog, it's an actual cloud. A cloud would blow in and just quietly eliminate all your sense of perspective. And you'd, you'd just keep going. And then a sort of cairn would rise, would just kind of materialize out of the distance. And all these rocks had lichen on them. And I, I just thought that was just, and the sound of the wind in those rocks was also uh, magnificent. I've been to the um, Grand Canyon. It was almost too big to grasp. Mm -hmm. uh, Have you been to the Redwood Forest? Yes, I got the worst case of poison oak I ever got in my life in Humboldt County. <laughs> oh, man. But it was, uh, it's pretty amazing. There was a place there called the Avenue of the Giants. Hmm. And I was there in, it was June and there was nobody around. And I was just sort of alone walking through this unbelievable grove with poison oak. But uh, yeah. anyway, I looked like the elephant man in, in three days after that. I was, I was in bad shape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's kind of my number one trip to take when i get the chance oh it's it's, it's pretty amazing um let's do a segment now um where we uh i just say a word and yeah. you give your rapid fire one word reactions to it oh okay all right ready for it just uh, one word what i can do new jersey <laughs> new york city yeah California. No. LA? Maybe. Hudson Valley? Definitely. Richard Pryor. Love him. It's two words, but I'll take it. John Belushi. Sad. Chris Farley. Sad. Frank Zappa. Brilliant. Robert De Niro. Intriguing. All right. Now picture God's face. Is the God you picture wearing a hat or glasses? Either. Is it a painting, a sketch drawing, a cartoon, or a photograph? Photograph. A punk rock legend walks into a bar. Who do you picture? Johnny Rotten. An acting legend walks into a bar. Who do you picture? Jimmy Stewart. A literary giant walks into a bar. Who do you picture? Saul Bellow. All right. That they were all good... together, by the way. <laughs> In the same bar. It was quite a night. Yeah. Uh, that was a good segment. I'm happy we did that. Um, back to climate change therapies. Um, I wanted to ask you about writing versus acting, because I know you started writing. You went went to acting uh, later. Um, you explained about kind of, um, you know, the way that to keep up a consistent routine, you know, maybe write every day, uh, you know, stay centered, you know, but um you know, how do writing and acting differ for you in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, um, process in terms of, you know, working on yourself or just, uh, you know, 
um, kind of uh, creating um, and as therapies related to climate change related, whatever, but maybe I'm being too specific with the question, just how to, uh, when, when do you write? What do you try? What do you like to get out of writing and what do you get out of acting? Well, I think they've been sequential and um, in that I started as a writer and I was very driven, urgent, nervous, you know, all of that. Um, because I thought, well, I'm going to be a writer and that's the way it was. So I was writing. So that was phase one. Phase two really started when uh, I exhausted all the uh, soap operas that were out there. They, I worked on three and three of them went off the air, not because of me, but they went off the air. And then I retired and I started to act because I was curious and writing, of course, is pretty solitary generally, uh, even though I was on a team of writers for the soaps. Um, and one of the things that I really started to learn through acting was listening is an action. Listening is active. Not only is it active, it's absolutely crucial. And it's sort of it's sort of wonderful because the truest stuff comes starts to come out when you're listening. And, and this ties in with the martial arts as well, that you're, it's a co-created moment. You, you just don't slam through everything. And that's the way it is in writing. You can sort of be in charge seemingly, and you're in charge of everything. So who's to say when you're doing too much or too little. Um, so, so the writing started to, uh, excuse me, the acting, started to inform me about taking time and listening and letting things, as they say, land, letting things move in on me. Uh, the teacher that I uh, worked with in New York, Austin Pendleton, would often use those terms. Uh, and he was, in his acting, famous for taking so much time and really just letting things sort of cook a little. Now, when I'm going back to writing, as a, as a result of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. My acting mostly has been taken away. So is the Aikido. So I've gone back to writing, but now I'm using the lessons I picked up from Aikido and acting to write. In right, other words, I'll sit there with a pen in my hand and go, huh, what's next? So it's a kind of listening. Yeah. And again, to tie in with what I said before, the urgency has to go away or else I'm really not doing the process as I'm doing it now. So I'm, this, it's teaching me the process is teaching me how to do it. And it's much more important to, for the process itself than what, I, what I'm actually writing. Right. And sometimes the, uh, the process kind of gets integrated, the acting and the writing. Sometimes you'll, you'll write a play that you will act in. Um, and when you, write, when you write plays that you end up acting in, do do you write them with you acting in them in mind or does, does it happen that way? Um, does it, you know, when, when you're writing a play that you eventually act in, is it always your intention to play the part that you are writing? No, not necessarily. Since I'm writing all the parts, I kind of have to, I, I feel like my responsibility is to channel all of the parts. And so I have this kind of sub vocalization, this weird sound. I actually make a sound when I'm writing it. So I'll, I'll say it. I'll be doing the lines. 
out loud. So it's this weird kind of mutter mumble sort of thing, but I, I am actually often forming the words. It's not just in my head. So I actually want to feel physically the words coming out. And that's, I think that's kind of a, uh, a function of listening too. There is a, certainly a sound you're, you're in a play or a screenplay or you're not, you're never going to see the words on a page, mm -hmm. you know, if, when it's being consumed, when, when the work is being consumed by the ultimate uh, target of it, 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 an audience, it's not meant to be, the words are not meant to be seen. So it's, uh, which always was such an interesting thing when I was living in Los Angeles and working on feature movies and TV movies that you have a script and the script has to please all these people who look at the words and then decide, are we going to make the jump to have it be a picture? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be words that other people now speak? So is it going to go from uh, a written document to an oral piece of work, a pictorial mm -hmm. and oral piece of work? And, mm -hmm. uh, and when you're working on a script for the soaps, you know who the actors and actresses are that are going to play the parts. So you're writing the parts you know, with a voice and a look in mind, but, but other times when you're creating something that hasn't been cast yet, um, how, how do you picture, you know, how do you picture, um, do you picture specific actors or actresses when you're, when you're writing something new or do you kind of create amalgam characters? Yeah, I don't, I, I, unless I know if, if, unless I know for sure going in, if I get it some hit on, oh, this person looks like this, I generally have more of a, it's a physical sense of them, but it's not a picture. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of feeling. It's a sense of their, their energy or a sense of their physicality or just uh, the, the tensions that they have or the rhythms that they have or the way they move. But I don't have a, a face really i have a general sort of notion of the body type um the piece i'm working on now there's a lot of stage directions because it's very the story is being told in people doing things not speaking necessarily and i it might be tremendously overwritten at this point but that's okay it's a draft this is what i'm saying about the process i'm learning you know as, as i think i've probably mentioned to you before when you when you're going to build a, a building, you put up a scaffolding, let's say, you know, mm -hmm. and it, this, the, the scaffolding has to be serious. It's a serious piece of uh, construction to get that thing stable, to have it be uh, along the footprint of whatever you're going to build and strong enough to support the, the materials and, and so forth and the right dimensions. And then you build the building. But at some point, the scaffolding has to come down when the building's done. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the place where I'm not sure necessarily what's scaffolding and what's building. I don't know yet. I don't know if some of the material that I'm writing is actually support structures and at some point will be taken away mm -hmm. that the whole thing not only right. can stand on its own, but is better that way because the scaffolding looks like hell, you know, and it's working kind of against yeah. the, the, the total result. And I don't know, that's, that's experience. And that's uh, uh, having other people say, Oh, by the way, David, that's scaffolding and, yeah. and me believing them. I always so, thought that was that was great advice. It's kind of a, a a more 
eloquent way of saying kill your babies, which they often say it's the, the idea that that spawns the whole story is not necessarily the, an idea that you need to keep in the story. That's right. That's right. Uh, I, I, I had a, a situation where I pitched a, I might've told you this story too. When I was in LA, I, I pitched a story to an independent producer that was very, very closely uh, aligned with my experience playing high school football, a sort of dramatized version where, um, and, and I got so excited telling the story and this happens. And then boom, at the end is that, you know, and it was really that. And the guy was entranced. I, I love this. And they paid me, you know, they made a deal with my agent and I got paid, you know, a nice chunk of money to write this screenplay. And I handed the screenplay in. And it was and it was exactly what I had pitched, the story that I pitched. I delivered it. He acknowledged that, my agent, and we all sort of looked at each other and said, it just doesn't work. It's not good. It's and there was what and I said, well, what? I, of course I felt horrible. I thought, oh, now I'm gonna die because I failed. But what it was was that yes, I absolutely delivered what I had pitched, but what I pitched was my story. I got excited about it because it's my story, but my Uncle David's story was not that dramatic. It's not a movie. Mm. It meant a lot to me because the emotion meant a lot to me, but it's not really a good story. So <laughs> I plowed the whole thing under and rewrote it from the ground up. I think I kept one side character one uh um you know non-main character everything else changed and it was really it was a the movie the script was never turned into a movie but it was really good it was a really good solid heartfelt thing because it was a real story it was a real movie story so that was a great lesson to me Mm -hmm. just because i'm passionate about something that happened to me doesn't mean that thing that happened to me is a, is worthy of making a story. It certainly is worthy of informing my intuition. And that's what I've been wrestling with now with this play. I mean, I have all these feelings that are, but will they end up uh, generate, helping me generate something that is itself actually a good story? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I will say, in trying in, in looping all this and trying to link this with climate change, yes, um, I think that, and, and given the political climate and all of that, that what I'm what I'm working on is a way to to hold a mirror up to at least this little part of the human condition. This is what look at what people do. How do people deal with each other? How do people deal with the, the, the problems they have? How do people start to see themselves a little differently and reach some sort of peaceful moment of rapprochement with, well, for one of, you know, the better angels of their nature? And I think if, if this, if we're going to be, if we're going to rescue ourselves and, and thereby really say, look, think beyond ourselves, and do what's right for the planet, future generations, and so forth. I think those those realizations need to be activated. I think people have to be at some point brave enough to to say what I want. Just what I want 
the way I've wanted it over the time that I've wanted is not as important as these other things. Mm. Or at least those other things have to be incorporated into the way you do things. Um, People have to be willing to pay a little sadaka every once in a while. I, I think so. For... I think so. And, and I think it's, it doesn't have to be, I think there's, uh, it doesn't have to make people miserable. I think it has to make them go, aha, that there, there is a, there is a, a, a rightness to what people need to do. And they have to start paying attention to what the, the right things are, not what the convenient things are or what they would like to have happen. That there is a, a deeper and broader correctness that we all share. I would like to think we all, we all do share it on one level, uh, on some level. And I think obviously the key is for enough people to, to feel that and, and that it, if it influences people in positions of power who can make decisions and, and so forth. I mean, you're in a, a, a business, an industry where people are routinely using that and thinking, well, what's going to make all this better? You know, it's a very, insp there's a lot of inspirational, uh, hugely creative, um, ennobling things that are going on. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. And there's certain, obviously, industries that are just the opposite. My industry, you know, the notion of uh, writing or acting, can it illuminate those specific situations? Do you go out on the street and do you know, like bread and puppet theaters where you're talking about, you know, now I'm a fish and there's a, there's a wonderful theater company up here called Arm of the Sea Theater. And it's all about local um, land use, the climate, history. It's, it's, it's a wonderful group and that's what their focus is. Mm -hmm. So, and then you have the, you know, people who are strictly on their own, like, like well, I'm not a comedian or, well, I'm just doing these old plays you know at some point uh though i think that we we are all in this kind of we are all in this together and uh i often think well if i'm joking around at a party or if i'm just being funny does that does that help anything and then i think well sometimes maybe if i'm in a funny play yeah the people who come to see it it's like it's like being in the uso where these are the people in the audience are could be first responders or cops or doctors or people who are in urban planning. And if something that I can do gives them a moment of an, a little something, a little shot to their system, they will go out and, and take it to where it will do some good. So I would like to think that there's some sort of symbiosis in that respect. Yeah, I think there, there definitely is. And, you know, we, we think about the role of art, the way it, the role it's played in the past, uh, the, the way it, you know, it plays now and potentially could be in the future as the sciences have kind of taken and uh, in, increased, um, like the STEM subjects have become the focus of education in many ways. Um, but just to go back to Moby Dick, Moby Dick was written before the origin of species, before Darwinism. And now when you think back on Moby Dick, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I, you would think that it had a big effect on 
you know, the anti-whaling movement, like people read that and kind of thought, well, it could have had, it was fiction, but it kind of told the truth about how ridiculous this was. It shined a light on all these things and made people respect the whale. It might've also kind of given people the, um, like stirred their sense of adventure and made them go on a hunt the whale. That's, that's possible too. But I don't think Moby Dick was written as an environmentalist book, but I mean, it's kind of taken on that significance today. You know, when you think about, um, you know, kind of the anti whaling movement, especially in recent years in Japan, making it illegal to hunt whales in different places, saving the orcas, um, it, it kind of, you know, even though, again, even, even though like maybe you read it and you go want you want to go hunt a whale still just by in a way personifying, well, not, I would say not personifying the whale, but like deifying the whale in a way, um, it can be read. It, it, it sort of has taken on an environmental, I don't know, intonation in time. I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 that's that's probably true. There are all kinds of totemic animals that that people select as being representative of, you know, a natural order that absolutely should be preserved. And some of them tug at the uh, heartstrings in different ways, or are marketed in different ways. Elephants, you know, a, a lot of the. Uh, larger animals, these magnificent animals. And it's interesting that, you know, in the oceans, you've got the whales and on land, you've got the elephants. Those are probably two of the biggest animals and also probably the, the, the most uh, emotional responses from humans as far as uh, the degradation of their environment and the predation of the, that we do of them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, as far as uh, these books, the you know M- M- Moby Dick was not an uh, uh, an ecological one. It was a it was a natural. You know the natural the world the natural world more than ecology itself was really you know Jack London writing about Alaska. Mm. You know people will will take these and to talk about the glories of the great outdoors. I mean Theodore Roosevelt course is probably one of the in in this country at any rate was a pivotal figure um you know it was a real interesting contrast because here he was this jingoistic imperialist uh looking to to carry his big stick and expand 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 the american empire the, the colossus bestriding the world and yet he started he also recognized that natural glories have their place and should be uh, uh, preserved and started all the national park. Well, I don't know about all of them, but I think the national park system was started under his, in his administration. Mm-hmm. So the forest service. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, because, and because of his formative experiences, mm-hmm. you know, of, of, of hunting. Hunting was one well, of the hunting, primary also, engines yeah, of he, conser- conservation movement. Yeah. Yeah. He, well, he was also, and then there was notions of strength or masculinity. You know, he was a frail spindly kid and he made by force of will 
and exercise, he went out and made himself. And when he went West, that really was the, the crucible that, that formed his character. That he went out there, pitted himself against the frontier hmm. and, and not only survived, but prevailed. And that was the, the way you did it. You know, this is, this is like the way people talk about football. Well, you know, you play, go out and it'll teach you, blah, 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 or, you know, build a sailboat or, you know, do these things that test you against um, either the natural world or other people in competition. That it's, it's kind of a, a competition. And I think we're, we are the individual notion of pitting, pitting yourself against it is, is, I think feels a little different now for a lot of people. That's, I think that's modified somewhat that people are rock climbing or out there doing uh, marathons or Ironman competitions. Yes, they're pitting themselves against themselves. So that part, Theodore Roosevelt was a, uh, very modern in that respect. I think he anticipated that. Uh, but I think people are also, um, it's a part of doing things in the natural world also glorifies that world also. It exalts the fact that it's out there, you know, this, this incredible landscape or the, the wonders of the ocean to, to explore things and, and all that. And hopefully that kind of consciousness will will be concentrated enough for us to take really long-term committed definitive action to preserve it. When COVID's all over, um, do you have an, an area of the country or say or the world um, that you are curious of seeing? I'm curious. I, <laughs> I want to go everywhere and be able to sit on a street in a bar and drink a beer. <laughs> everywhere <laughs> that's that's kind of how i feel i want to walk into any any bar anywhere whether it's in vietnam or you know someplace in uh, in the the veldt of africa or south america or canada and just say i'll have a beer please yeah. how you doing and yeah. that's outdoor dining doesn't do it for you uh, not if I no, it's not as intimate. No, I would sit outside. I mean, I would sit on a porch and all that. But I mean, just to stroll in, I'm you know walk in and just be in a place I've never been before, and walk in and say, "Hey, how you doing?" And beer and what's up? And and that there's no uh, COVID. There's no artificial barriers to it. Yeah. People, people are doing that now. I, hard, know. Yeah, people I know. <laughs> I saw the pictures at Ohio state, these morons. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> oh, well, man. Idiot. I got a couple of other uh, rapid questions. Okay. Um, what was your favorite animal as a kid? As a kid dog, a dog. Okay. What's your spirit animal? Hmm. That's a good question. Might be a hummingbird. Why do you say that? They're inquisitive, adroit. Um, <laughs> I would not have guessed that. Pugnacious. I would have thought, I would have said black bear. No. Okay. No. Hummingbirds 
they don't really they don't really eat uh you know hamburgers no they don't okay they don't they they might be shapeshifters though um do you dream of football no you don't dream of playing football never i have partly because i played mm-hmm. it i mean i think it was okay. you know uh, uh when i i played when i i played i enjoyed parts of it when i was done i was done the people I think who really got obsessed with it, the people who never got to play, you know, the team managers and the fans, you know, they get so obsessed with, we did this and we, I'm like, you know, I'm done. I did it. Mm. <laughs> I dream of sports often. Huh. And it's always, it's sometimes it's, it's maybe being like a, like team overcoming something, objective results, uh, you know, s- struggle, um, figure problem solving, mm-hmm. um, but I dream of football. I dream of soccer. I dream of basketball. See if you can interpret this dream for me. I had this dream last night where I was at, I was at a party. It was a hostile party. Um, it's like some coastal village somewhere random, but for some reason, all my friends were also there and you know, there was this, the smell of barbecue. People were you know, drinking beer. It was like, you know, before COVID hostile S T E L or S T I L E S T E L. Okay. Um, and I was playing basketball with all my friends, like it was old times. And, and I just remember, oh, this is paradise for me. Just like being at a party, playing basketball, <laughs> you know, and, and with the expectation of good barbecue in the, in the air. Uh-huh. Um, but then, um, these kind of like, uh, these bad guys came like in the driveway, toting guns and like firing guns, like they're going to shoot up the party. And, you know, my, my friends are there, people are there. And I, I, I run, I, I flee, I like flee my friends. I don't know where they are. And now I'm like running away alone and it starts to rain and I see a big tree. And then I hide under the tree thinking like, Oh, I need a place to like hide for the night, you know? And meanwhile, the rain's pouring down. Will this tree protect me for the the rain? And in my pocket, in, in my jeans, I feel like my cell phone getting wet. So I bring out the cell phone to like check if it still works and it still works. And then I like carefully put it back in my pocket. And I remember just, you know, um, I'm being under the tree, almost like the fetal position, just praying that uh, my cell phone survives the night. (laughs) Is that not a 21st century? Boy, that really is. All my friends like just are under fire at a party and I'm praying for my cell phone not to get rained on. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's a, uh, it's the truth. Yeah. That, I think that's just to, to me, that's about how tenuous your, the, the connections can be with you and your community or your friends. That's very sad. Well, I mean, it's because if you think about it, you're, you're right at home. It's all this stuff is very comfortable. All the symbols of being part of a community. Uh, right those symbols on the upside you've got the food you've got the 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 bonhomie the sports you're all you're doing all this stuff and you're all connected in that way it's like the ultimate social thing and then this threat to it comes in coronavirus anything anything the the rug gets pulled out and you know essentially what you're saying especially if it was raining the water your watertight doors close you're like cut off from everybody else instantly Mm-hmm. save yourself yeah and, it's almost like that's my my heart that i'm protecting well it could be i mean you know they talk about 
uh, first responders, you know, something happens and they start running towards the fire, towards the building collapse, towards the car accident, towards the trouble. Another, maybe an interpretation I just thought of was that your cell phone is all your friends in your pocket. So me trying to save my cell phone in a way is, is like me (laughs) trying to save my connection to all my friends. I think it's, it's the, to save it to anything that will save you. <laughs> because if you didn't have the phone, uh-huh. you'd really be lost. I mean, that it's such a, totem, you know, a, a totemic thing now. It's a, well, it's a, I had the, the ocean um, ran over my phone in September and I ruined my phone. And I didn't have my phone for a couple of days. And then I got, you know, I got back to Philadelphia. I went right into the Apple store. I couldn't call ahead because I didn't have a phone. Right. Um, when it was the pandemic, they had just reopened the Apple store. They said they're, they're not taking walk-ins for a week. I said, I can't wait a week. And I went and bought a new phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it makes sense because that your life really, our lives really, it's like, it's like a heart lung machine. If you, you know, if you, if you, if, if you can't use it, you need it to live. I mean, and, and in a lot of ways, that's what it is. But uh, the, the sharp pain of it initially, you know, what, what, uh, how well would you do without it? You know, I mean, I keep telling stories when the first time I went to California, drove across the country, there were no cell phones a long time ago, you know, and I didn't call home every two seconds. I wasn't texting. I didn't know what the weather was. I had a map, a paper map. I mean, and and I'm still in the United States, obviously good roads, ink speaking English. Uh, Everything was numbered. I could go get gas. You know, I I had a license. It was all like supremely under control, but now it would seem like, Oh my God, I'm going to Neptune. To, to have no, nobody knew where I was for a week at a time. If there was one thing you could bring back from the seventies, what would it be? Bring back from the seventies? Yeah. Doesn't even have to be something tangible. You know, it could be, could be a the excitement, the excitement a mindset of, or a habit. The excitement of hearing new music that just really did it for me. When the, like when, when punk came in, it just absolutely thrilled me. What what bands? I remember the night, uh, first night I heard Nevermind the Bollocks. I was in Phoenix. That was uh, pretty amazing. Um, I remember where I was when I heard certain songs by X, Hungry Wolf, things like that. Uh, and, and seeing the shows too, you know, that was just a, a protean time. It was just thrilling. Hmm. And what was strange is it's only, it was only 10 years after the first wave of stuff that I really loved. And like, because 1967 was when uh, Are You Experienced came out, the first Jimi Hendrix album. Mm-hmm. That was 67. And I was in ninth grade. And by the time, and only 10 years later, it's like nothing now. I was in LA and, and, and the punk wave hit. And it was like, ah, oh, it was just thrilling. Mm-hmm. You know, where everything stopped when something came on the radio. It's just, so that's what I would like. I would like to, it still does happen, but it happens from music that's kind of across the board. You know, something, something, there'll be a hip hop song that I'll just like, whoa, 
or a classical mm-hmm. piece or a, a jazz piece. I was just listening to um, the Miles Davis, uh, I think it's a, the quartet from 1967 in Europe mm-hmm. with uh, um, Herbie Hancock playing piano. It's just unbelievable, this stuff. Yeah. And it just, so, you know, it's, it's really thrilling, but as a whole new wave where that music had never been heard before, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I would say. And there's something that's happened with all of arts and culture, really, not just music, but also books and TV and movies. Whereas before, before the internet, it seems like that people, when something comes out, there's only a, there's a limited number of new records that are coming out and everybody's listening to it that week. Or if there's a new movie, everyone's seeing it, a new TV show, everyone only has six or seven channels. So everyone's watching the same, you know, Wednesday night at eight on ABC program. Um, but now there's just, there's so much content that whenever, like I see that when I'm meeting my friends, my dearest friends, you know, it's like, oh, so are you watching anything? And they'll name a TV series and I haven't seen it. And then I'll name a TV series and they haven't seen it. But we're like, we're best friends. Like we have the same taste, but right. But rarely do you just like meet someone and you're watching the same show. It's just, yeah, like, yeah. Doesn't happen as, as often. No, not. Well, there are some things that Sometimes. people will watch the same thing at the same time. Like the Super Bowl has become a thing. Uh, you know, probably those debates right. were a lot of people watch those in real time um right yeah i mean i i remember watching things on tv watching uh the beatles on ed sullivan watching the first uh in in grade school the first um u.s space shot alan shepherd in the first uh a man space shot that the whole the school was in the auditorium and there's a little tv it on the stage and the principal was watching it. It was that important. And they, I remember him saying he's alive and every, it was like a big deal. You know, the, the flight was very short. It just went up and down. It wasn't in orbit at all. Mm-hmm. You know, Alan Shepard just went up and down. Uh, uh, John Glenn was the first one who served, but that was one of those things where everybody was, you know, yeah. and then the, the moon mission that's happening in 1969, which is also when Vietnam's going on. And that's when, oh, yeah. You're, you're a teenager. So, I mean, the way people talk about 2020, were people talking about that in 1969? You have the Cold War, Vietnam. Oh, yeah. Moon landing. Listen, oh, yeah. Listen, on in 1970, the weekend I turned 18 was uh, May, I think uh, my birthday is on May 3rd. Uh, I think Kent State was on the 4th. I believe the same weekend I turned 18 was Kent state. And then I had to register for the draft. So it was like horrible. Did you think you were going to get drafted? Uh, I didn't know. I went to college and got a student deferment. I went to S to begin with. And then um, this, that summer I was working in Nantucket and a lot of the other waitress, the waitresses who were working uh at they were from smith i was at college they and i knew them and they were all working at this coffee shop and the night that the they made the announcement of what the um lottery would be when they they had the birthdays on lottery and i remember ann hyde one of the women came running up the street to where my boarding house and said 
you're 177. It was number 177. And the, the government had made a deal at that point. They would announce each year what they were, what number that they would be calling up to what number. And if they, they, it was kind of, if you did not. So I was high enough so that they weren't going to call me that year. So I dropped my student deferment and went 1A. They did not call me. So I wasn't called. Wow. So I was not, um, I didn't have to go to that point of, well, what would I do? Mm -hmm. But that's a, you know, that was super privileged. I was in college. Yeah. Do you remember anything about the Cuban Missile Crisis? Oh, yeah. I remember your grandmother coming down. I was on, uh, uh, what you call it, uh, crossing patrol. You know, I was like safety patrol. And she said, she came down very worried about what's going She said, pray for peace. Pray for peace. She was yeah. really worried. I hadn't seen her like that. Yeah. So that was, that was, you were in fifth grade. You must've been something like that. Um, did, uh, did your dad, my, my grandpa, did he, did he talk much about his time in the war? Or did you ask him much about it? He, there were a few stories that he would tell. And then there was a small picture that he had taken in uh, Nagasaki. He was at Nagasaki after the bomb. Really? Wow. Yeah. And it was a little square, uh, uh, black and white, but had gone sort of yellowy. I don't know where that thing is now. And the edges of it were perforated, almost like a stamp. In the old days, the stamp. Nothing, you know. And uh, I have some of his, his insignia from his jacket here and a Japanese sort of tourist that they did for the tourist trade of, of soldiers of battle flag. Hmm. Um, Do you remember? He would, tell, he would tell stories hmm. about uh, some of the things that happened to him. Yeah. Specifically I, in the army. Yeah. I'm not, none of them, you know, my, my grandpa, none of them are coming to mind his stories. Like, do you have, do you have one you could share? Well, he was a, he was a tank. He was a tanker. And, he was a, on a tank crew, and uh, one story he told was there was a uh, the, the the driver of I don't know if, what kind of tank it was. It might have been a Sherman, but the driver sat up front in the in the actual body of the tank, and the the cannon, of course, was in the turret, and the driver had was just sitting there with his uh, his hatch open. And, the, and the, they fired the cannon, you know, and after the cannon fires, it ejects the, the, the casing. And this thing was turned in just the way that the casing was ejected and landed in this guy's lap, the driver's lap, went right into the hatch and burned him right down because it was red hot. Of course, it was nearly red hot, burned him right down to the bone. That was a one story, you know. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then there was, I mean, there's, you know, then there was another story where there was a, they were in this little town and uh, well, he was with some guys and some guy took out his 45 and shot an old man walking down the street in the back, that like down the street, just a Japanese guy. And he was arrested and, and uh, put in the, put in uh, prison, things like that. There were small things and then horrible uh, uh stories about uh the the terrible conditions of going over 
on the Liberty ships, the, the cargo ships to, to go there. And these, these decks, they, they, they were stacked up uh, bunks, like eight or nine, like a giant jungle gym. Wow. And people being sick and lying in the bottom, you know, just horrible, long, slow crossings of the Pacific. So he went to Nagasaki after the bomb because isn't it, there a lot of radiation? It was either in Hiroshima or Nagasaki, yeah. Wow. And I often wondered if uh, you know he passed away from multiple myeloma. I, I who knows? Wow. Who knows? Crazy. I did. I didn't know those stories. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and there was a picture. Like I said, there was a picture, and it's just rubble. It's just this sort of sepia hellscape it's amazing wow um well uncle david you've been very generous with your time uh much appreciated full time i hope you can get like 10 minutes of decent stuff out of it (laughs) well i got just one more fact to react to just to bring it all back to climate change okay um so you know you mentioned the 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 news uh the news cycle we have there's content from everywhere there's movies from everywhere, TV shows from everywhere. No one can, you know, some, a few of the only common things everyone is watching these days are maybe it's the debates or everyone knows about the coronavirus and uh, Fauci and Trump, Pence, whatever. Um, but did you know that while all this is going on, did you know that 2020 Atlantic hurricane season, the current hurricane season is the, is the, um, it's the second most active Atlantic hurricane season on record behind only the 2005 season where there was hurricane Katrina, but this is it's, there's been 28 tropical or subtropical cyclones, 27 named storms, 10 hurricanes, four major hurricanes. So nobody's talking about this hurricane season to the second most active since Katrina. So I have a question for you then. If this is the second most active, how come in 2005 was it we didn't get the the uh, hurricanes that they're now they're they're up to Zeta? What what happens now? <laughs> where where do they go? I guess they they re- they can recycle names. There's like a special category for retired names. Like they've retired Katrina, you know. Um, but I think Z- Zeta is, has been a name that they've recycled. Hurricane Laura was this. No, year. Zeta is it's they're, they're into the alphabet, the Greek alphabet. Oh, I mean, after the names, oh. after the names they had available, then they're into the Greek alphabet. Here we go. So just more facts about the 2020 season. 2020 is one of only two seasons with the other being 2005, the year of Katrina to use the Greek alphabet. And see, I don't remember how deep into the Greek. I don't remember a Zeta that year, but maybe I was did. thinking Zelma. I don't know. That's my, my Zelma. Zelma. She, she was she was a storm. I'm going to uh, read off. Let me read off these facts about the 2020 hurricane season, okay. because I think our listeners need to know this. They're, our listeners have just been, you know, reading coronavirus facts, reading up on the debate. But meanwhile, this is the second worst hurricane season ever. So uh, 2020 is the record-breaking sixth straight season with at least one preseason storm. It's had two, Arthur Arthur and Bertha. 2020 holds the record for the earliest formation date for most named storms. There's a record tying two named storms in May, a record tying five named storms in July, 
a record-breaking six tropical depressions in July, a record-breaking 10 named storms in September. It's the first season on record to have nine tropical storms form before August, the first season on record to have 13 tropical storms form before September. It's the first season on record to have 18 or more tropical storms form before October. It's only one of two seasons, other 2005 to use the Greek alphabet. The eastern uh, it's had the easternmost forming Atlantic tropical cyclone on record. That's alpha, the other Greek alphabet storm. A record-breaking 10 landfalls in the United States and tied for the most Louisiana landfalls with four. So There's another one of, coming in two days. Zeta is going to hit New Orleans again. That'll be number five. And today, the highest... Uh, the, the highest recorded wind event of the year is happening in, in uh, California. 75 mile an hour winds are driving these fires, new, two new fires. So when are we going to do something about this? You mean something good? Yeah. Do you have, do you have hope? How can like, what are, are people, are we going to get to um, a carbon zero country um, world? I don't know. <laughs> How does the story end? I, you know, I, I, I really don't know. But I know that that usually b- before a lot of people ch- change is when they get hit in the face with a plank long enough, they actually have to stop doing something, or oh. when something is actually gone. So I, I hate to be a a pessimist, but I mean, human nature just seems to say, you know, when they won't light a candle till the lights go out, they won't go on a diet till they have a heart attack they you know all that and it's it's i think it's just people are lulled they're comfortable and and things will keep going until they can't go even and there there's some people who are wonderful and realize it can't go before the actual ending where it's, it's like do something now like the projects in uh london or the projects in Holland for for uh, the rising tides and so forth, uh, and I know they're t- <laughs> America. I don't know what it is. Freedom. Mm-hmm. We have the freedom to be idiots. You know <laughs> yeah. these crazy cockamamie plans for New York, where they're going to put up a a wall all the way around the bottom of Manhattan Island or something. Like, yeah, put a wall. Uh, you know right. how high is the water? Four feet. And they do five feet. <laughs> it's just. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, but I think there's got to there's going to be it's got to be a lot of younger people who come up with this stuff and have the staying power to start on something and stay with it and and work whatever systems are left. I. So, are you saying there is a sense of urgency? I think the urgency (laughs) is in, in in some people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, by the way, that there's a difference between urgency and focus okay there is something to to, you you know if a train's coming you don't go well i'm just hey i'm not (laughs) not urgent no i mean there's there are times when you there's a certain speed that is appropriate Mm. but urgency is getting out ahead of your own skis when if you know something is has to be done you got to get your center moving that fast right that's not that's not urgency that's focus that's action 
Right. Because if you run too fast, you'll pull a Daniel Jones and trip after an yeah, eight-yard run. And, with... and urgency is is being centered, even as you know, let's say you're 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 afraid because it's not about you. It's about what has to be done. So you're a little detached from it. The urgency, I still say, is about this ego need to, because it's going to protect you and what people are going to think this way if you don't do it a certain way. And it's this kind of <laughs> the nervousness of it. If it's something that just needs to be done, you act now, you go do it. And that's so there's a difference between, I think, focus, energetic focus and urgency maybe it's semantics or i'm making too fine a point but i i do think that there's a difference okay i think it's a good point any this i promise is the last question now uh any any tips for how to be a better listener because i'm trying part of doing this podcast is to try to be able to listen to someone give a response and then to respond to that response i haven't always been the best listener as you know sometimes i i get aloof and you know, someone can say something and I kind of get hung up on what they've said. And I start thinking about how to respond and then I miss, uh, you know, yeah. the, the rest of their point. Yeah. You're already ahead. Yeah. Uh, my, I, I think it. one thing is just breathe all the way down. When somebody start, when you finish saying something and you're right, going to listen, just take a breath all the way in and drop your shoulders. And then just let the breath out and pay attention to them just so you've stopped that helps it's an actual physical so when you've you've had your thought breathe out and then when breath comes in in also comes what they're saying and have faith maybe that even if you let go of the thought that you've grabbed onto anxiously have faith that you can let it go relax listen and by the time that you know they've finished their point you will you know, have the wherewithal to sum it up. You might have a response. You might not have that same point, but you might have a real conversation. Okay. Which is a little different. Fair enough. So how'd we do today? Tonight? I think we did pretty well. It's a real, real conversation. <laughs> yeah. All right. So. Yeah. Well, I'm really happy with a lot of questions. So the format's a little different than, than if we were just on the phone and that's true notes and stuff, but uh, you tell me. You're the boss. Hey, you got to have some structure to talk about climate change for Absolutely. two hours. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, yeah. So I think so. Well, you'll let me know. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll send you the link. Um, okay. All right, David. I'm going to stop recording now. Uh, yeah. Hang on the line uh, for a sec. But uh, okay. yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. Once again, uh, my, my uncle David. <laughs>